Good afternoon. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the March 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture. Our monthly interview show broadcasts the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. Before we continue, I did want to put in a plug for our Arts and Cultural Empowerment Awards, our ACE Awards. The 7th ACE Awards Breakfast will be held this June 21st at the Norwalk Shore and Country Club, and nominations are now open. We need your opinion. Who do you think is worthy and deserving of these awards? We have artist, citizen, educator, corporate, and non-profit categories. Who has made the biggest impact on the arts and culture of our region? Go to our website, culturalalliancefc.org, for the link to the form where you can tell us why your candidate deserves our award. Now, back to our program. And this month, our subject is the arts and social justice. Now, many people may think of the arts as a nice kind of human activity, perhaps a niche activity for hobbyists that is merely a decorative extra to our lives, giving it some interest, some elegance, some color. And to a certain extent, that is true. I would say that, yes, the arts do add color, do beautify. But that's just a fraction of what the arts are and what they can do. Many recognize the power of the arts as a force of expression that spans the personal, the social, the political, that gives voice and physical representation to ideas and emotions that can either reinforce or question identity, conviction, belief. The arts can be therapeutic too. In fact, next month, the subject for our program will be arts and healing. Today, we're looking at the role of the arts as a force in the social justice realm, as it can be seen in the work of two Bridgeport organizations, the Center for Family Justice and LifeBridge. In their leaders, Deborah Greenwood, President and CEO of the Center for Family Justice, and Edith Boyle, President and CEO of LifeBridge, and in the work of artist and teacher Alicia Cobb, who works with both organizations. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us, David. Thank you. So we'll, Thank you. we'll, of course, talk about both organizations in detail in a little bit. But let me briefly say, for those who don't know, we should say that LifeBridge provides a variety of community services for families and young people who, in the face of great personal and social obstacles, can improve their sense of well-being and resilience. Um, in addition, the, center for, the um, LifeBridge recently added an outpatient urban trauma center for urgent care. The Center for Family Justice provides crisis support and treatment for the victims of domestic and sexual violence and child abuse, creating hope, restoring lives and driving social change. Now, the concept of social justice is, of course, a huge umbrella covering a wide range of areas of activity. From my own perspective, I would say it reflects a real belief in society, in the social contract, and how we as members of society have a responsibility to the care and well-being of each other. 
and that covers, of course, human rights, healthcare, racial justice, economic justice, the environment, and more. So, turning to Deborah and Edith, I'd like to start with your own sense and understanding of what this term social justice means to you today in the work that you do, and then we'll talk about how in your careers you've come to this point. So let's start, Deborah, with you. What does this term social justice mean to you today? So, David, um, I've been in the nonprofit sector for well over 40 years right now, and um, it's changed dramatically. I want to say most of the time for the better, but sometimes I look at what's not happening and what mm. steps we might take backwards, especially these past year. Um, but when I look at social justice um, in the nonprofit sector and in my own um, lifetime, I look at these five different areas, which huh. is access to resources, mm-hmm. uh, a fundamental principle of social justice, which includes equity, mm-hmm. um, not to confuse it with equality, but equity, diversity, uh, participants that uh, need both of that. Um, we, we have a very diverse group of individuals that we serve mm-hmm. and human rights. That would be my definition right. of social justice. Right. And you talked about how things have changed a lot over the years. Um, so you started your career at the Y, is that correct? I did. I- <laughs> Certainly a socially engaged organization. Mm-hmm. But how did your understanding your personal understanding of social justice come about through the positions you held and through your own personal engagement? So um, we'll we'll say back in the mid-80s to the early 90s, um, I want to specify that I work for the YMCA, not the YWCA. Uh And it was a different world then. Um, This was when, sorry? This was uh, starting in uh, 1985. Oh, Yes. Uh, actually yeah. starting here in Bridgeport uh-huh. uh, in the fitness field, um, raising uh, my three girls uh, who were very young at the time. So I knew it was important uh, on a few levels, uh, making sure I had the uh, educational bandwidth uh, to continue moving forward. I had a, a four-year degree, but I needed to move forward uh, to a master level. And that was my ultimate goal uh, while I was raising my three girls uh, in a YMCA, which uh, back in those days was pr- pretty much dominated by male hmm. um, in executive roles. So starting as a fitness director, uh, there was an understanding um, at that time, uh, no one's fault, but uh, if you look at the old Jane Fonda uh, uh-huh. work, workouts <laughs> right. that we used to have, um, most people would look at that as primarily uh, dominated by females. So when you look at both sides of the coin, um, I thought it was very interesting that we needed to get more men involved. And I moved through my career as a trainer, uh, not only in the greater Bridgeport area, but all the way from New Haven to Hartford, that we needed to uh, purposely look at uh, young men going for their uh, physical education degrees and to get them on the gymnasium floor. Uh, which sounds a lot easier uh, than it really was. Uh-huh. Uh, it was very predominantly a female area. So uh, interesting to interesting. watch what yeah. was happening then and how things evolved later on. Oh my, right. So um, in order to continue to move forward in my own career, which I knew I was very engaged with the mission of the YMCA at that time, um, I liked what they stood for. Uh, the programs were very diverse, but most importantly, the individuals uh, coming to our YMCAs in big cities like Bridgeport and New Haven and Hartford 
Stanford, um, as you move through the career, you realize you really needed to kind of keep your ear to the ground and um, really look at the types of programs, types of music that you were providing uh, that would engage people from every culture from a large city that was extremely diverse. So really from a marketing point of view, you were kind of engaging in equ- equity I mean, Very because much. you wanted to engage a broad as ra- a range of people as possible. Yes, exactly. So you had to do a lot of research on your own, Uh go on college campuses, um, do a lot of evaluations, not just the people taking your your classes, but also individuals in the community. Well, how come you don't? Oh, maybe you don't have time or what, so forth and so on. But also taking it one step further, being able to provide something for well-being and self-care, keyword self-care on making people healthy and feeling included. So as I started to develop a curriculum for different fitness programs, uh, the music was important and also the affordability, but take it another step further, working in a nonprofit like a YMCA, it was important that people understood that anyone was involved, whether they could afford to pay or not. Hmm. And that's the difference from a YMCA or nonprofit versus going to a private club. Right, right. I, you know, I'd never thought of that before, but I can see that that's a real major difference. It really did. And, you know, we watched the music culture throughout the years. um, And, you know, we've we've heard uh, about Zumba classes, how important that was, not just to those living uh, in um, our our, uh, Latino uh, community, Mm -hmm. but how exciting that allowed someone to get healthy and fit uh, by loving the music uh, that they've grown up with. Wow. There's a whole theme here that I hadn't detected before. Um, about the, I mean, there was the arts at work, really, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, what was the next stage for you beyond the why, beyond physical fitness? That- so beyond the why, as, uh, the, you know, the more engaged I got, the more I really fell in love with the mission because I was watching the children that would come along with their parent that might go into the daycare center, but then listening and staying, it's what happens before and after class. You mm-hmm. know, you see what's happening there, but you're also listening to individuals that uh, talk about uh, issues that they might be having in their personal life. Richie, we missed you last week at class. Uh, I hope you're okay and so forth. So listening to individuals talk about things that were happening in their personal life um, got me to really want to continue with this organization and find out a how to get involved with all the assets or facets, I should say, of a nonprofit business. Mm-hmm. Um, moving up the line, I'm going to use again, again, uh, back in those days as a woman, um, looking at the executive director's roles was not always something you felt you could reach. Uh-huh. But um, yeah. I really got uh, to know a few mentors in my life, one that I still speak with, who's in his uh, mid 80s, who said, if you want to do it, here's what you need to do. And again, let's go back to raising three kids. Um, and uh, my husband was my greatest mentor and cheerleader to say, keep doing it, take the classes, uh, find out what it what it might mean to you to become an executive director. So besides doing a better job with creating programs for my community and listening to people in my classes well beyond the fitness world, looking at the arts, looking at uh, pottery classes and ceramic classes and um, Mm. and drawing classes Mm. and music classes, why these things were coming out was still uh, back in those days, something I felt, let's listen, let's try it and let's see if people want to come in and what should that look like? So you're evaluating what you're putting out there and uh, 
we hope that 80% of the time you are doing a good job and the other 20%, maybe not so much. So trying to enhance and evaluate what you're doing. I continued to move up and understand the fiscal responsibility that I needed to put programs out there uh, and what that cost might look like and what scholarships I could allow in the classes so we could have uh, back to diversity, uh, the uh, the equality that we needed uh, in a Y and you were allowed to do that. And um, I had to take a lot of different courses in business management and fiscal responsibility, but let's take it another step further from there. When an opportunity came up to be a full-time program director, you had to apply just like anybody else, whether they were with the organization or not. Still at the Y. Still at the Y. But moving forward from there, um, a few years goes by and uh, with a lot of education, um, working Mm. double time, extra hard. Um, oh, a lot of dedication and vision, too, a lot of vision. I bet. Yeah. You really needed it. And I became a, a, an associate executive director. And having that mentor that said uh, he, he was moving up, uh, the gentleman that was helping said, uh, I'm going to be moving up in my career, so my position will be open, but you're going to have to apply just like everyone else. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, I needed to make sure that when I went into the interview, I understood what it was like to run a business in a nonprofit understand budgets and all the facets we know uh, on program development and supervising um, staff. But let's go back to diversity. It was critically important, no matter where your why was, that you were representing the uh, constituents that were coming through your doors so people felt welcome. So you would purposely go through a process and make sure that not only were you getting the best and the brightest, but also looking at diversity back in the 90s, which... um, uh, again, I think was a, almost a, a lost art at some at some point. Yeah. But successful yeah. at, at the end of the day because it grew a larger audience of people that wanted to take classes and courses that made their self care grow, uh, make individuals want to get more involved in the organization. And that brings me to the last facet of what was very important to finally become an executive director and. At those, in those years and days in the uh, early to mid 90s, predominantly wise were being run by men. And uh, when I was uh, announced as the executive director, um, someone might say, well, gee, you've been there. You were there for such a long time as the associate executive. It would just be a natural fit to make you be that person. But that's not always um, the way things should be. Hmm. Uh, so you had to work for it. You yeah. had to interview for it. And you need to understand how to work with volunteers and boards of directors that had a vision that you realized was going to be very broad and to look at what was in the best interest of the community, right. not in the best interest of Deb Greenwood, <laughs> in the best interest of what was best for the community and so the why. You, you became executive director of, and this why was it? That was in Trumbull, in Trumbull. At the Lakewood okay. Trumbull YMCA. Wow. And again, with a lot of great support that were already in those roles at Otherwise that helped me, um, I think asking for the help, listening to some of the things that um, I was being told to do, such as educational uh, forums and making sure that I really had a good handle on fiscal responsibility, how to fundraise, but really knowing my community, knowing the people that were coming through the doors, number one. And number two, to realize once I put myself first, I was going to fail. It wasn't about Deb. It was about Hmm. the why in the community. Hmm. And um, I think that sometimes individuals might think that uh, 
you're running an organization, it's not about you. It's about how you engage others and to look at Absolutely. all the things we talked about in social mm-hmm. justice, diversity, um, the uh, equity, and making sure that you were representing everyone and never thinking that you had all the answers. Right. So I realized moving into that field, it was important to take it another step further. And I did because that's just I guess call it a type A, I'm not sure what you call it, but I got involved in the national organization of the YMCA of the USA. And my passion uh, was always regarding those that needed more support. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, working with the disabled population. So having that credential of uh, education, um, I found it was extremely helpful as I got through the Y uh, to put programs that really represented people with disabilities, including children. And, um, and lo and behold, went 180 with it. Um, and uh, our first grandchild uh, came into our life uh, with a rare disability oh my uh, gosh. and was yeah. given less than a year to live. And I realized that all the things I had learned was important to now be able to help him thrive and and rise and um, being given a year to live. Uh, God willing, he'll be 18 years old this oh year. Oh my gosh. So, That's, you know, uh, when you look at what was put yeah. in front of you, yeah. you have to really, it, it involves you to do better and to also go back to listening to other people. And one of the things that I found, and I'm going to conclude here uh, in my career, was that listening to individuals that came through our doors that might share one-on-one that they were uh, in a situation where they couldn't afford to come because of financial abuse or abuse in the household or children that were coming to our day camps or after school programs, kids that were being affected by abuse was something I was extremely passionate about. And I was fortunate enough to not have it in my own personal life. So when the opportunity came to apply as the CEO of then the Center for Women and Families in 2007, uh, I worked as hard as I could because I needed to really feel that this was going to be the last chapter of my career huh. yeah. and was uh, w- was named the CEO of now the Center for Family Justice. Well, wow. one of the themes is definitely engagement, right? Listening and, en- and being engaged with as wide a diversity of the population as you, as you can. That's an amazing story, Deb. Thank you. Thank you. So, Let's turn to Edith. Um, that's a hard act to follow. Yes. <laughs> um, so f- let's start with what the term social justice means to you today. Sure. Uh, in alignment with Deborah, um, social justice to me is the collective effort to distribute ah. opportunity, privilege, and power um, in a fair and equitable manner um, so that all groups, you know, regardless of personal characteristics or, or even regardless of your zip code, um, are, yeah. are valued and affirmed. And I think part of that effort involves addressing any systems um, that devalue a person's dignity and, and humanity. Oh, yes. So the social and I guess the political are really very, very important in that, in responding to the personal. Um, So how has all of that evolved for you? Um, I note that you were trained as a clinical social worker and a mental health service provider. Was this a calling from an early age for you? And how did your career develop? Yeah, I believe so. Um, 
you know, my family didn't have a lot growing up. Um, you know, by government standards, we were part of the the statistics um, of mm. households living in poverty. And I was diagnosed with type one diabetes as a child. And as I watched my parents navigate the healthcare system to get me the care that I needed, this was really my first experience um, of social injustice and huh. and honestly discrimination. Um, so very very personal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I often felt that I was treated with less respect um, because of the type of health insurance um, that I had and that I was using. And unfortunately, my experience um, is not uncommon. Um, research does suggest that, you know, non-English speaking, um, you know, minorities, low income patients face stigma um, that does bar them from from actively participating in their health. Um, so that's one example. I read a stat the other day that said um, something like four. of low-income patients feel disrespected after a care Mm. encounter and and then they Mm. walk away less likely um, to access treatment again. Right. Don't want to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also say, you know, my lived experience um, definitely influenced my decision to become a clinical social worker and a a mental health service provider. I'm also an adoptive parent. Um, You know, I adopted my son, so that influenced it as well. Um, But now that I'm I'm leading um, a nonprofit agency that that provides behavioral health services, um, you know, in the greater Bridgeport region specifically, my personal goal um, is to ensure that we're providing the best care possible um, in terms of quality yeah. and um, and also providing in a way that conveys dignity and respect, respect. Um, both yeah. for staff and the, and the clients mm. that we serve. So it's that um, theme of engagement, sort of sincere, caring uh, engagement that is... Yes. is important for you too. Um, I want to switch a little bit to this, to the role of the arts. I know that Deborah mentioned (laughs) her engagement with music really early on. Can we, can you talk a little bit about um, how the arts have played a role in your work or, or in your life up to the up to the present? Sure. You know, I wasn't really exposed to public art um, growing up, mm-hmm. uh, but I have definitely, you know, since grown to appreciate it. Um, I There's a passage by author um, Elizabeth Alexander, if, if you haven't read her oh. book, The Trayvon Generation, I highly recommend yeah. it. It's a great book. But there's a passage in there and, and she says, art and history are the indelibles. They outlive flesh They offer us a compass or a lantern with which to move through the wilderness and allow us to imagine something different and better. Hmm. And that idea that art is a compass or a lantern, um, you know, art is an effective uh, clinical treatment modality, you know, that vehicle to express your lived experience, to process past traumas um, and really promotes um, and facilitates healing. Well, it's interesting, too, because it's like the two-way process of the art. There's art as inspiration, looking to examples or lessons that you get from inspirational work. And then there's the art that you can do in terms of finding your voice and expressing sure. what's, what's really going on for you. And having both of those at work is, uh, is clearly important. Sure. Deb, uh, you can start with the music if you like. Sure. Um, <laughs> So I did grow up in a, a music house, uh, uh-huh. in a sports house. So I, it was always interesting um, how music would affect uh, living in a sports house. Um, my <laughs> brother, myself, my father uh, and mother uh, were both immigrants. And my father 
uh, always um, had a song on or the radio on, but he sang uh, and um, had an incredible voice. Uh, I always compared his voice uh, to Mario Lanza because um, he loved the opera. So at a very young age, even though we didn't really have a lot of money, he would save up and I would, and he would introduce my brother and I, my brother being the sports person and me being the person who loved music, uh, would always try to take us to see um, any type of opera that might be uh, in the Connecticut area. So uh, taking it a step further, um, singing in a large family with lots of uh, cousins, uh, 15 of my girl cousins, we all sang uh, those little shows that kids put on. Now my grandkids put on was always part of our our, um, our family gatherings, whether it was a Sunday dinner at my grandmother's house or it was a holiday uh, or being in the church choir. But I think uh, what takes it a step further was um, the love of uh, being I'm going to go back to uh, the sports house, um, baseball and all those things that my brother played. My father coached uh, Mm. was great, but my mother uh, always felt that since I loved music as well, she worked in a factory and she always scraped nickels and dimes together so I could take dance lessons in downtown Bridgeport. So I always found um, (laughs) one of the buses to take me down Uh here and, uh, and do that. But my brother being an athlete, we uh, all picked a musical instrument. Believe it or not, um, he and I both played the accordion for many oh, years. <laughs> you still do it? Do you still get it out? I you know. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's been broken for a long time, oh, no, and I'm sorry. afraid to let it go. But right. I just found yeah. a museum that will take it for free. Oh, okay. But when you think about um, uh, when I hear music or I hear a song or I hear something that my father used to sing, of course, it brings tears to my eyes, but joy as well. Hmm. So did important. this, we talked about the music being an important element of the why. Um, has that, did, did that continue later in any way in terms of the, um, either the why or it did. the center? Um, David, one of the things, um, and I'm going to share a secret, because um, meeting so many children at the Y, I found it was important to create some other opportunities for non-sport kids yes. that needed a yes. place, right? Yeah, I identify as that, uh-huh. so I understand. There yes. you go. And, um, what, and, and myself too, I remember yeah. having to play softball and I hated every minute of it. And I, <laughs> all I could think of was give me back the dance floor right. uh, because I love the music. So we started to create programs and we put together uh, some introductory dance lessons and as well as uh, someone donated a piece. Mm -hmm. So we had different volunteers that helped. The dance program grew to from 50 kids to the first recital to over 500 when uh, just before I left with not Deb doing it, but having the right person again uh, in front who grew the program. And um, the recital was different than you might find in a private school. Uh, But it was just beautiful to watch the kids year after year come through that program. So introducing the arts and the why is something that uh, we've carried over, not at the same level of numbers, but also at the Center Mm. now for Family Justice, because we have seen the self-care that the arts have provided to victims of abuse and sexual violence, from journaling to uh, art classes, to introducing the kids that have gone through these doors, uh, having the exposure now to uh, cultural arts Mm -hmm. uh, that are uh, just around. And um, actually, I want to thank you, David, for coming into our center and helping me do an analysis of what else we can do. Hmm. We we had very white, stark walls that needed love and having a vision now to bring that self-care to our clients that are there at support group, the kids that come into support group, 
to give them a, a different feeling where even if it's for an hour, they can get lost in right. something positive. Right. Really important. Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and the March 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our program today, The Arts and Social Justice, focuses on the role of the arts as a force in the social justice realm, as it can be seen in the work of two Bridgeport organizations, the Center for Family Justice and LifeBridge Community Services. Their leaders, Deborah Greenwood, President and CEO of the Center for Family Justice, Edith Boyle, President and CEO of LifeBridge, and artist and teacher Alicia Cobb, who works with both organizations. So let's now turn in more detail to the organizations. Um, let's start, Edith, with you and LifeBridge Community Services. Tell us briefly about the work of LifeBridge, how it got started, how it's changed, and what's the focus of your work today? Sure. Uh, LifeBridge has provided services to the greater Bridgeport region for over 170 years. Wow. And <laughs> yes, we've been around a long time, um, though our services have evolved um, over time to align with identified needs in the community. Behavioral health services uh, have remained the foundation of our work. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned earlier, David, um, LifeBridge is one of eight designated urban trauma centers in mm -hmm. Connecticut. Um, we're also one of the largest providers of mental health services in the greater Bridgeport um, region. Um, but as an urban trauma center, our behavioral health clinicians, um, they receive specialized training um, to address urban trauma and the psychological effects of racism specifically. Huh. Um, in addition to other forms of, of trauma. Um, we also provide youth programming through our Urban Scholars Program, um, which is targeted for Bridgeport uh, middle school students. And that's where um, Alicia, Alicia Cobb, is our uh, one of our current um, art instructors. Um, and and since Bridgeport, I, I, I love it. I've learned so much about Bridgeport this past year. Um, Bridgeport is so rich um, with art and, mm. and you know, yes. hundreds of working artists who really maintain a, a thriving infrastructure. So integrating art into our programs and the services we provide was really a natural and important progression um, for LifeBridge. Um, not only, like I mentioned, is, is um, art a key component you know, for our youth program naturally, but we also do have plans to implement art therapy as one of um, our offerings um, oh, within terrific. our behavioral yeah. health department. So uh -huh. if you're an art therapist yeah. out there, come see us because huh. um, we'd love to bring somebody on board. That's great. And you've just been with LifeBridge for Yes. April 1st will be one year. Wow. Yes. Good. It's been one of the best decisions I ever made. I absolutely love it. Well, we're very pleased that you've joined us. You're a great breath of fresh air. It's nice to, to have you in our community. Thank you. Um, and Deb, tell us about the Center for Family Justice. Um, how, when was it started? Um, mm -hmm. What do you do? So we are, uh, we were founded in 1895 while we as well are wow. uh, yeah. in a uh, seasoned nonprofit. Yes. You notice I didn't use the old word. Uh, <laughs> we started as a YWCA. Really? Uh, we did. Oh, I had no idea. We yeah. did. Um, we actually started in a barn on a farm uh, in the town I live in, <laughs> uh, in Monroe, and there's now condominiums on it. But as um, Bridgeport evolved, 
uh, and Route 25 uh, was put through uh, from Bridgeport out into the suburbs. Uh, the organization ended up uh, moving to downtown Bridgeport. Uh, from there, um, in 1994, when the Violence Against Women Act was uh, enacted in the country, um, that which is the Violence Against Women uh, the the focus there was domestic violence, sexual violence, and child abuse. So the organization uh, disaffiliated in 1997. The board made the decision that they would uh, not duplicate uh, programs and services that, believe it or not, the YMCA was doing, uh-huh. which uh-huh. is diagonally across the street from <laughs> our current building. Right. And at the end of the day, um, became the Center for Women and Families uh, with a, a domestic violence safe house, 24-7 hotlines for victims of both domestic and sexual violence, as well as having a child forensic uh, interview space. Uh, so we became a children's advocacy center. Uh, so that was the, the journey up until uh, 2016. I got there in 2007. And um, with a question we learned from national nonprofits is what's uh, in the best interest of best practices mm-hmm. on how to run a certain type of program. So um, we work with um, uh, 17 other member agencies in our state. So we're one of 18 doing domestic violence work. But back to what's best practices, uh, we had the Harvard Business School do a pro bono evaluation in 2009 to help us find that answer, which was a family justice center is best practices. I'm working with victims of abuse. So it took us about five years to raise money, uh, do construction in our building and become Connecticut's first family justice center, which primarily has under one roof everything a victim of abuse might need, such as law enforcement, legal support services, uh, as well as support groups, the 24-7 hotline, uh, if you need residential support and services, everything we do at the Center for Family Justice is free and confidential. But we took it another step further, and after crisis support, uh, we now have uh, different types of things such as uh, workforce development, how to find a job, how to become self-sufficient, mm-hmm. and how to work with the children that have been living in these households. And um, as as you can only imagine, uh, after COVID, we've seen a 32% spike mm. in the amount of people mm. needing these support services. So we currently serve uh, 5,578 people every year. So now the children are getting um, very specialized support uh, at the Center for Family Justice. We're proud of the growth that we've had and back to we're never going to be done. But we also know that our, our end mission is to be put out of business. Mm. We wish, but we, <laughs> it's unlikely, yes. Correct. Um, so it's interesting that both, both organizations give crisis trauma support when people are in absolute terrible situation, but also remedial, structural advice and, and help with their social situation, the, the longer-term personal Situation, so it's both the spike and the longer term that you're at work in. We found that um, the Department of Justice identified a victim of abuse will go through the cycle five to seven times before either he or she is oh, actually gosh. out of the scenario. Yeah. So, trying to get um, 
uh, a victim of abuse, getting all the support they need as fast as possible uh, is critically important so that they don't have to go to 10 different places to get what they need. Right. And it's that care and engagement with the individual, of course, which is so so important to give them the sense that they matter. Absolutely. And making sure when um, there is someone that might be listening today, if they feel that they're in harm's way, uh, we always say to someone, please call 911 immediately, but then look at the hotlines for uh, our agency. Um, we work very closely with LifeBridge on clinical support services. Uh, we have clinical support for children at our agency, but working very closely with the nonprofits in the greater Bridgeport area has really made a difference. Uh, I think we're very proud of the work that we do as a collaborative. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in our work, I mean, the nature of our work is to is to bring people together. But uh, especially after COVID, we realized that we really are stronger together, working together collaboratively, finding common links, um, that we should never be in competition with each other. We should find ways of collaborating with, with each other. I want to turn now to um, our artist, Alicia. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, Alicia, so long. Um, Alicia is on the phone. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, can you describe a little bit of the artwork that you do and how you got started as a self-identified artist? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, so I am a Bridgeport artist. I have been for um, some time now. Um, I am also outside of visual arts. I'm also a teaching artist, um, which is you know how I'm affiliated with LifeBridge um, specifically. I have been a, a professional artist for um, a little more than 15 years now. Um, when I identified as an artist, pretty much, I, I'm pretty sure I, there's not a time that I haven't identified as an artist, oh, to be okay. honest with you. Yeah. Since, I was, That's... since I was very, very small, I've known um, that art was um, my gift. It was uh-huh. something that actually a, a teacher um, in my elementary school um basically just let me know that I was really talented and she was speaking life into me during a time when I didn't really feel seen or heard at home. There was a lot going on. My neighborhood had a lot going on and I had this art teacher in elementary school who um, she saw something in me and she, she spoke life into it and she spent a little time with me, a little extra time with me. And I'm pretty sure that changed the trajectory of, of my life uh, uh-huh. specifically and has uh-huh. brought me where I am now. Um, as far as what kind of art I do specifically, I am a visual artist. Um, most people know me for body painting. So I do paint, uh, human bodies, which has been a very healing experience for myself and the people that I've worked with. But in addition to painting bodies, I also paint on canvas and walls and pretty much anything I could get my hands on, to be honest (laughs) with you. (laughs) So let me ask you that same question. What social justice, um, means to you, um, whether it's changed over the years? Um, I think it has changed over the years for me. I think when I was younger, I didn't really have an understanding of what social justice was. And even um, as a very young mom um, to black children in this country, I, I was not, not that I haven't hadn't had my own experience, but the things um, that I've experienced as a mom and the feelings that I felt as a mom are very different than um, me as a child. And so social justice to me, it, it just means, all, of, all around equality for everybody. Uh-huh. We, we live in a social system where everybody should have the, the same resources, the same opportunities, the same privileges. 
Um, and so social justice to me is, is um, very similar to what Edith said. It's a collective. It's a collective of uh, humanity and people coming together and saying, hey, we all should have um, access to the same thing, the same rights, right. the same resources, the same opportunities. Um, can you tell us how you first got connected? It's amazing that you're working with both of these organizations. Can you tell us yeah. <laughs> how you first made the connection? Yeah, actually, um, Center for Family Justice I worked with years, many, many years ago. I, huh. um, in the beginning of my professional career, I was a face painter, and that was uh, pretty oh. much what I had done for uh-huh. years and years, right? Yeah. I, I was painting kids' faces, and Center for Family Justice um, has these beautiful events to celebrate these families and, and help them to, you know, take their minds off of, you know, some of the things that are happening. And so they, they had mm. this, um, they had several events. One in particular that comes up for me is um, they have a boo bash right around Halloween. You know, they have a, a little event for the families to be, a, be able to, you know, spend time together and celebrate. And I would just go in and, and paint faces. Um, for the children, for the parents, anybody that actually wanted their faces painted. And and so that was my first connection with Center for Family Justice. But I also um, have gone in, um, I was part of a, a traveling um, show that they actually are, are relaunching again now where my artwork um, was basically representing survivors um, or people who are who are suffering abuse. Um, I had specifically have a painting um, of my daughter um, called Treasure, where she is hugging herself, and it was that that painting is very much about her own journey um, through finding self, through uh, overcoming abuse. Um, it's about my own journey uh, of, of overcoming abuse, and so I was part of a traveling art show that they had um, at several colleges last year. Um, and now I'm um, talking to them about the possibility of bringing some color to the walls here. Right. So um, LifeBridge, I actually have been with for a little more than three years. I was brought in as one of two art instructors. The other art instructor that is there is Shauna Melton, who is also um, a very well-known Bridgeport artist. Um, and, and so we've been there since the very beginning of the Urban Scholars Program, which was in the beginning of 2020 and just a month and a half oh my into goodness. the program. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just a month and a half into the program, COVID hit, and we had to do a lot of pivoting, a lot of um, navigating around how to continue to make the program work. And what was, I think what was the most beautiful thing about my experience at LifeBridge is um, that program remained um, in operation throughout the entire pandemic, even in the height of it. We did have a mm. portion of time where we had to go um, virtual, and I was actually kind of the person overseeing at the time. So um, Urban Scholars and LifeBridge is, is very near and dear to my heart. I, I love what the program is about. I love what we're doing there, and I'm very excited about what we're working on now and what is to come. Yes. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about more about Urban Scholars? Uh, and actually, we invited... Shanna, but she was unable unable to to make this time yeah. with us. So yeah, well, I, I could speak I could speak on behalf of both of us. Okay, um, good for the Urban Scholars Program. I think it's it's a program that's basically offering um, arts and social emotional learning to children of Bridgeport, to the greater Bridgeport area. Um, I I particularly like I say that this is close to home for me because I am one of these children. Though I did not grow up in Bridgeport, I grew up um, in Stanford. I did grow up in the projects of Stanford, and we did not have access. I didn't have access to arts programming. I was 
fortunate enough to go to a school that was a magnet school that was very arts based. And, and as I mentioned, the teacher that was there really spoke life into me. But this program, the Urban Scholars Program, gives these kids access to the arts, gives them access to social emotional learning. Um, we, they get all kinds of things in this program from music lessons to visual arts. Um, they actually now we have yoga that's been implemented. They do mindfulness and meditation. And so they're, they're accessing now these, these programs that are not necessarily available in the schools. Um, and even arts in general is not as readily available in, in the schools as it was when I was growing up. I don't know how I would have survived academically or in general, without art and music in school. And say, say, a little bit, taken, yeah, say a little bit more yeah. about that, Chana. I mean, I, I uh, Alicia, honestly, sorry. How, no, no. You, how it was honestly, a... Go ahead. It was a saving grace for me. It, mm. it, was, it was the way that I was able to express myself. It was the way that I found my voice. It was the way I was able to speak to the world. Um, my parents divorced when I was very young. And as I mentioned, I grew up in the projects of Stanford. So me and my brothers were exposed to all kinds of things at a young age. Not only were we living in poverty, but we were also living in a neighborhood where there was there were many dangers. Um, you know, this was in the 80s and 90s at the height of, um, you know, the, the many crises, many drug crises that were happening that we, we had a lot of crack in our neighborhood. Um, there were a lot of shootings in our neighborhood. Mm. And these were uh, these were a normal everyday occurrence um, for us. And at the time when I was a child, I did not know that this wasn't normal. It was my my lived experience. Course, yeah. I didn't know anything else. And so, you know, as I grow, grew older and I realized uh, what was happening and I realized the dangers that I was in, I, I can say that um, art single-handedly kept me away from a lot of danger, it kept me inside, it kept me, like, it was the thing that I focused on, it was the way that I was able to grieve uh, the divorce of my parents, it was able to, it was the way I was able to grieve so many things and process my emotions. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't a big talker, um, uh -huh. I was a very quiet child, if anybody can believe that, because I talk all the time <laughs> now, but I, I was very quiet, I right. was very quiet and withdrawn, and I didn't really know how to express myself in drawing and coloring and painting. And, and music um, are the things that gave me the ability to process my emotions and um, eventually heal. That's uh, amazing to, to hear. I mean, it's clear that you are furthering what what you experienced uh, growing up. Growing yeah, up. it's really important. Um, in, yeah, it's in, really important to me, which is why Urban Scholars is so important hmm. to me. Yeah. Um, anything you two want to add about the the work that you do with the arts? Um, maybe anything more you want to add, Edith, about the Urban Scholars Program? It sounds a, an amazingly conceived yeah. program. Yeah, I think something that um, I, is especially effective with that program, um, you know, Shauna and Alicia are excellent role models hmm. um, for Bridgeport youth and um, they do such a great job just in their day-to-day -day interaction with the students mm -hmm. um, so it, it's sort of be goes beyond um, you know simply showing the uh, 
ins and outs of how, how to paint or how to draw. But um, that social emotional learning aspect um, has been a really key component to that program. And, um, and just the modeling um, that, that they both do, um, it's really inspiring. They're, they're, it's been great to work with both Alicia and Shauna. Right. And the center, um, any programs that you think will be developing at the center? So our our big focus really right now because of uh, our adults and our youth that have experienced trauma, uh, and we talk about PSTD, that so many, almost all have uh, that have been affected by abuse, uh, really allows the uh, individual, and I hate to use the word victim, so let's just call them client, um, towards survivorship where they can be lost in uh, their own positive thoughts, whether they're painting something or they're listening to something or they're dancing or drumming. So that is a, a, a huge focus of ours. Uh, we, we've had great success uh, by once again, listening to our clients, asking the kids and the adults what what really would help them. And their journaling that they've done really allows them to put down on paper how they're feeling and um, what what that might look like. And we had uh, done this with a program called Written Out Loud with oh, our youth. Okay. And they wrote their own stories. And each story had a, had a positive ending where we would look at the kids that never had hope to go to school and finish and graduate for kids that never thought they could fall in love with something to mm. have a vision or, or um, a career to look for whatever that means in their own eyes, in their own thoughts. So the arts allows them to develop that hope in their life that was taken away during the abuse. So for us, it's definitely a high priority for the adults that come through our doors and the kids that come through our doors. So journaling is one of the core arts programming. Who runs that? So right now, what we've been doing is um, trying to uh, have some of our staff Yes. Uh, take some courses online, but we're looking for individuals in the community oh. that might be um, willing to help with that program. Uh, we have uh, had many dancers come in. We have a dance school right now in Fairfield that is offering a program for our kids to go there. Which is that? Uh, that is a, um, Sirico and Divaldo in uh-huh. Fairfield. Right. Uh, they are an incredible uh, group as well as uh, Monroe Dance Workshop. So depending on where these kids are, the transportation piece will be the key piece. Yes. So they're going to try a few things from music to drumming to singing to theater. Um, but oh. uh, looking at what we did at one of our events that was open at the amphitheater last October really sparked some how come I can't and I'd sure love to. So <laughs> by listening to that, we've now put that ball in the air and on top of that the painting component and murals and doing their own special treasures that they can create will be something we hope to actually work with um, with your organization David which um, we know is held in such high esteem in uh, lower Fairfield County so that's the vision of what we're doing to move forward that's great and Edith you have a big event coming up um, that involves um, the arts um Broadly, tell us about this. Sure, sure. We're excited. Um, on April 27th, LifeBridge will be hosting our Creating from the Heart, Cultivating Our Beloved Community Art event, which is intended to bring the Bridgeport community together around the healing of urban and racial trauma 
through artistic self-expression. Um, the event will feature a leading industry expert on racial trauma, Dr. Miza Akbar. She actually serves as the chief diversity officer with the American Psychological Association, and she's also an author of a couple of books on urban trauma. Will this be an all-day event or an evening event? It's an event? evening event, yeah. and it's free to the community, um, all ages. Um, we will be featuring art from uh, Bridgeport-based artists and artwork produced by the youth participating in our Urban Scholars Program. Um, attendees will also hear from our keynote, Say Adams. I'm not sure if, if listeners are familiar with Say Adams, but he's the founding creative director of, of Def, Def Jam Recordings. Oh, well, um, yeah. So he'll be okay. sharing his journey <laughs> as an artist. Um, but again, it's free. Um, I do want to thank our lead sponsor, MNT Bank, and um, the Knowlton, who is both the sponsor and the venue for the upcoming uh -huh. event. Um, so if you are an artist in Bridgeport and you are interested in um, putting your art in that event, in that gallery, um, please go to our website at lifebridgect.org. Um, the deadline for art submissions is March 15th. Um, but I'll, I'll also mention too, um, we selected this beloved community theme um, because the youth participating in our Urban Scholars Program, they're learning about Martin Luther King Jr.'s six principles of nonviolence. And that oh, second right. principle mm -hmm. is nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. And the purpose of nonviolence is the creation of a beloved community. Uh, so part of the event um, under the guidance of Alicia Cobb, uh, the youth are learning um, these principles and they're designing and completing a mural here in Bridgeport. Um, it's being filmed by a filmmaker, a short documentary, um, which is exciting. Yeah. And, you know, want to invite the community out on May 12th for the community day for that painting of the mural. So the event is April the 12th? April 27th April is 27th. the Creating from the Heart. Um, and May 12th event. for the unveiling. Uh, yes. That's fantastic. Good. Well, um, we've run out of time <laughs> and um, so much more to uh, discuss. I want to thank you all. Alicia, thank you for joining us on the phone and um, really um, amazing testimony to the power of the work that you're doing. And thank you very much, you. Deb and Edith, for joining us today. Um, I've learned a lot and um, there's a lot of work for us all to do to together, I think. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. You're welcome. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our March 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our program today, The Arts and Social Justice, focused on the role of the arts as a force in the social justice realm, as it can be seen in the work of two Bridgeport organizations, the Center for Family Justice and LifeBridge Community Services, and their leaders, Deborah Greenwood, President and CEO of the Center for Family Justice, Edith Boyle, President and CEO of LifeBridge Community Services, and artist and teacher Alicia Cobb, who works with both organizations. You can hear the show again on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, April the 13th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture. Support for WPKN comes from M&T Bank, celebrating the power of together. Together, moving communities forward while giving back. Together, supporting small businesses, nonprofits, and families here in Connecticut and New York. 
More information about M&T's commitment to the people, businesses, and community organizations they serve is available at mtb.com slash togetherwecan or any local M&T bank branch. Member FDIC. Hi, I'm Binnie Klein, host of A Miniature World. In a time of unprecedented challenges with many basic rights under attack, WPKN is marking Women's History Month throughout March with events, music, and conversation. As WPKN Radio celebrates its 60th anniversary in 2023, we also honor the many women who have created great radio on these airwaves and have contributed significantly behind the scenes to our success. I hope you will join the women of WPKN on Saturday, March 18th for a special one-day fundraiser. We will feature great music, great talk, and one-of-a-kind premiums from local businesses and artists. Again, please join us on Saturday, March 18th for a day of great radio. The opportunities for you to contribute will help this community radio station thrive for decades to come. This is FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. A brief look at what's happening around Fairfield County. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our weekly selection from FC Buzz Events, the best guide to arts and culture in coastal Fairfield County. Find it at culturalalliancefc.org. Monday, 7 to 9 p.m., Westport Country Playhouse invites the community to Script in Hand Play Reading, Mauritius, a story about two estranged half-sisters who, after their mother's death, discover a book of rare stamps that may include the crown jewel for collectors. One sister tries to collect on the windfall, while the other resists for sentimental reasons. In this gripping tale, a seemingly simple sale becomes dangerous when three seedy, high-stakes collectors enter the sister's world, willing to do anything to claim the rare find as their own. Monday, 7.30 to 9.30, the Richfield Playhouse presents An Evening with Doors, Misadventures of Doom Scroller Tour. After a sold-out show in 2019, Doors returns to the Richfield Playhouse with a brand new tour. Formed by brothers Taylor and Griffin Goldsmith in 2009, the Southern California Roots Rockers have scored hits with When the Tequila Runs Out, Roll With the Punches, and all your favorite bands. For details on these and hundreds more events, check FC Buzz Events at culturalalliancefc.org. This was FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. Hi, my name is Carla Mesclos, and I'm the Executive Director of Operation Hope, located in Fairfield, Connecticut. Operation Hope has been in the community for over 25 years, working to end hunger and homelessness for our neighbors in need. We offer a comprehensive shelter program for men, women, and families. We serve lunch and dinner every day to anyone who is hungry in the community. We operate a food pantry that provides basic staple items for those who are struggling to make ends meet. 
We own and operate 46 units of safe, affordable housing that comes with support services, and we provide clinical support and daily living skills counseling to those we serve. Our talented staff and numerous volunteers are witness to the power of people coming together to support those in need who just need an opportunity for change. If you'd like to help or for more information, please visit our website, www.operationhopect.org, or call us at 203-292-5588. Hello there, this is Kevin Gallagher, host of Digging in the Dirt, and you're tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut at 89.5 FM and streaming live at WPKN.org. Hey! 